0: Open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. i invite you on the way out. There is a bookmark that we made that has the Take 7 prayer list that we're inviting you to pray for. Um, In the foyer there, you can grab one and remember to pray for the seven things. If you're not sure what that is, you'll know when you pick up the bookmark. But um, it's a reminder to be praying for... Revival in our time, much needed. We'll be reading verses 42 to 47. Hear now the word of the Lord. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. Father, again, we come before you asking that as you speak to us through your word, that you would send your spirit, that we may have eyes to see and ears to hear. In Christ's name, amen. Well, we've been doing this series, uh, many kind of series on the church And one of the things that I've emphasized, and I really don't think I can emphasize it enough, but I've been emphasizing is that the Church of Christ is regulated and directed by the Scripture. I've said it over and over again. We don't have the right to just come up with what we're going to do here because we all kind of got together and voted that way. We need to follow the Word of God. Probably heard the name John MacArthur. He said, The church is not built on clever technique. It's not built on manipulation. It's not built on strategic marketing plan. The church will be built on those who affirm the divine revelation, which is the foundation to the church. And so it's the word of God. The teachings of the apostles. That's why we said in Ephesians 4, Paul said in Ephesians 4, and we looked at that passage as well, that the the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus being the chief cornerstone. And so if the church was going to be built on the Scriptures, if it was going to be built on the foundation of the apostles' teaching, it was vitally important, was it not, when you think about it, to teach these apostles. They needed to know some things. And so, in John 14, right before Jesus is leaving, uh, before He's going to ascend or go to the cross and then ascend, uh, resurrect and ascend, He teaches them. He knows that they're troubled, that He's leaving. And He says this in John 14, verse 25, These things I have spoken to you while I'm still with you. I've taught you these things. But, He says, the helper, uh, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. And so, Jesus is saying, Look, I'm teaching you a lot of things. And if we read the uh, Gospels, you realize they didn't get it all, of course, prior to the resurrection until the Holy Spirit came. But after the Holy Spirit came, Now he's going to bring to remembrance all these teachings. And so when does that happen? Well, it happens on the day of Pentecost. We read that as well now in Acts. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And so the disciples and some believers are together. uh, uh, And suddenly we read, There came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues, other languages, as the Spirit gave them utterance. And so now, uh, this day, the day of Pentecost, this community was 120 people. That's the number of believers that were there. Um, And then Pentecost happens. And so what are they to do? They're they're gathering together. We know that they were meeting together. That's important. We read that there, that that they were praying together. We found that out. We know that they've received the Holy Spirit. And we know now that they've been given this gift of languages to communicate to the people. So what are they to do? How are they going to reach out? How are these 120 going to reach out? Well, we're told that they are to preach. And that's exactly what Peter does. He gets up and he preaches to those who are in Jerusalem for the Passover. This diverse group of people from all over Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Asia, Egypt, and even Rome. People were coming from everywhere to come to the Passover. And we're told in the verses right before the ones we're going to look at that with many words, Peter bore witness and continued to exhort this group, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. And so he's preaching the word. He's preaching the gospel. He's filled with the spirit. And he's going to preach to them, save yourselves from this crooked generation. And then we read, so those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day, added to what? To the church, about 3,000 souls. And then we read they, verse 42, and they. What's that refer to? The 3,000 souls these souls, plus the 120, so 3,120 people, um, they devoted themselves. That's what we read here. They didn't come forward at some crusade and say, yeah, this sounds great. I'm going to go back home and just live the same way, but I'm glad I'm now safe for heaven. They they don't do that. Uh, They don't just make a decision. They devoted themselves, we're told. They devoted themselves. Notice the process here. The word is preached, and, and they're exhorted, save yourselves, save yourselves. This is a crooked generation, Peter stands up and says, save yourselves. And, and those who received the preach word, those who believe, they were baptized and they were added to the church, and then they read, then we read, they devoted themselves. And so to receive the word and truly believing results in being devoted. That's the process. It's a full devotion. To respond by faith to the preaching of the message of the gospel is to be brought into a community, devoted to a community, brought into the assembly of the redeemed, as it's called, brought into the body of Christ. You're you're brought into the church. The point is this, that when Jesus Fulfilled his promise to the apostles and the disciples that he would send his spirit. At that moment, at Pentecost, God gave birth to the new covenant community. You could put it that way. He gave birth to a community. See, to be saved, to be a believer is to be adopted into the family of God. You don't have one without the other. There, there's no such thing as a solitary Christian. And so the 3,000 who believed, those who believed at Pentecost, at once entered this new family. It was a family that wasn't defined by genetics. It was a family not that, you know, it wasn't picked out based on skin color or social status. All the rich gathered together. No, it wasn't their ethnic background. All these diverse people from all over who traveled that believed, out of that 3,000, they were all rallying around, united around, aligned around allegiance to Jesus. It came to Jesus. People from every tribe and tongue and nation brought together around the triune God, and they're placed into the triune God's church. And see, our passage this morning, and I, and I believe I, I found it on the website. In fact, you find it on many websites of churches. They talk about this is the kind of church we want to be. Why? Because this is the ideal church we're seeing here. It wasn't perfect, and you just have to read Acts, and it doesn't take long for them to start falling apart. All right? It wasn't perfect. They had doctrinal errors. They had conflict. They had hypocrites, just like we do today. It's, but this description is intended to be an example of what church is to look like in our day. We learn that they devoted themselves to a few things. The word devoted here refers to and implies that they were regularly, continually re, uh, persisting in the activities that, that we're going to name. That's what they were doing. They, they were devoted to these things. They were constantly applying themselves to these things. And the activities that they devoted themselves to, the ones that they applied, that they engaged in, it's kind of a practical map for the church. It gives us direction on what we're to be doing. It doesn't matter when the church is, time frame. We started sometime in the early 1700s. What happened then is the same as true today, 2021. These are the things that we need to have. And so the question is, what are the activities? Well, we're given five specific ones, five specific activities. All these activities are marks of a true church. A lot of people have names. We're the church of. This is church of. But what is a true church? You can have a name. You may not be a true church. Well, first, it's a learning church. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That's verse 42. It was a fellowshipping church. They devoted themselves to the fellowship, says verse 42. And verse 44 says, all who believe were together and had all things in common. And so it's a fellowshipping church. It's also a worshipping church. Now, when it says the breaking of bread with the definite article, the breaking of bread um, and the the prayers in verse 42, most commentators believe that that's talking about the Lord's Supper, communion, and and corporate prayer meetings. And in verse 46, when it says they were attending temple together, it speaks of corporate worship. And so, an ideal church, a true church, um, is a worshiping church. Fourth, it's a gifted church. We're told that many signs and wonders were being done, says verse 43. And then fifth, it was a mission-oriented evangelistic church. And the Lord added their number day by day, those who were being saved, verse 47. And so that's the picture of an ideal church. Now, we have said that this is Christ's church. It's not the pastor's church. It's not even the elder's church. It's not your church. It's Christ's church and He's the one that's building it. And so, if I were to summarize these things that we just learned in a different way, I'd say the true church learns the apostles' teaching about Christ, the true church fellowships in Christ, and the true church prays in Christ's name, the true church worships Christ. The true church partakes of Christ's body and blood. The true church is gifted by Christ, and the true church bears witness to Christ, sharing the good news that Christ has died and He has risen again. And so an ideal church, a, a biblical church, is a church that is focused on Jesus and all it does. It's a church focused is on Jesus, and if it's not focused on Jesus, it's a church that Christ isn't building. And these activities are what bring our focus to Christ. All of these activities are vital for the church. Now, if you're familiar with our Reformed confessions and what we teach, you'll know that the chief activities are preaching the Lord's Supper and prayer, the word, sacrament, and prayer. That's what's called the ordinary means of grace. This is the teaching time of the sermon where we kind of slow down, and let me explain that. Maybe you've all heard it. I'm not sure. If you have, then just bear with me. Ordinary means of grace. Our catechism, the shorter catechism, puts it this way. What are the outward means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption? We've been redeemed. How does he, uh, uh, you know, contribute, or excuse me, communicate those benefits to us? How do we receive them? And the answer is the outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicates to us his benefits of redemption are his ordinances. Here they are. Especially the word, and the next question and answer, it'll say, especially the preaching of the word, the sacraments, that is, worship and prayer, all of which all of which are made effectual to the elect for salvation. Now, what does that mean by salvation? When it says salvation in the confession, it's talking about not just being saved in the beginning. It's our growth and our salvation and our final salvation. God has made a promise that these three things are the ordinary way he's going to communicate to you your ability to grow, for the church to grow, for us to glorify God. And the confession, when it says that, in order to prove that this isn't just something they're making up, but is biblical, they quote our verses. That's their quote, one of many. And so the importance of these three, ordinary means of grace for the life of the church, cannot be overstated. If you want to grow, you need to take advantage of the times we gather for worship. If you're at the installation service, uh, and, and you or you watched it online and Dr. Sachs has shared the importance of gathering for worship, to be here. I know many of you are, are there on the on the internet, but if you can be here, gather. Why? God has made a promise to you. He's promised to bless you if if you come under the preaching and teaching of the word, if you come under the worship. He he can work any way he wants, right? I've heard people say, well, you know, I can worship God on the golf course. Uh, you can. I mean, you can worship God anywhere. But, but that doesn't mean he's promised to meet you there. He's promised to meet you here. He, he has said, I, I promise to do this. I can do anything. I'm God. But I promise to do this. And then you say, well, I'm going to try my luck. And I'm going to go to try my luck. Yeah, that's what you're doing. And you go to the golf course. No, he's promised, he's attached his promise to these activities to graciously bless you when by faith you hear the word preached, you partake of the bread and the wine, you worship the Lord in the way he's prescribed, and you bow your knee in prayer. And so any church that is biblical, is an ordinary means of grace church. I know that it's not a term many out there use, but that's what we call it. We focus on preaching, worship, and prayer. And, I, and I've been doing that throughout this series. But what about fellowship? I mean, I guess I just need to come to church, I need to pray, and then when you offer the Lord's Supper, make sure I take it. I mean, fellowship, is that important? Well, the truth is, Our confession doesn't mention fellowship. Some don't even mention prayer because they have a specific thing in mind. But many believe that fellowship is also a means of grace. And even if it's not considered what we just technically called a means of grace, we know that it's necessary because it's emphasized in the Word. Its value cannot be overstated. And so as important as the activities of preaching are, and they are vitally important, as important as taking the sacraments are, coming and gathering for worship, singing, praying, and using the ordinary means are, this morning what I want to do is I want to focus on this idea of fellowship, this activity of fellowship. Look at verse 42. They devoted themselves to the fellowship, says verse 42. Verse 44, says, all who believed were together and had all things in common. And so that's going to be the focus of the sermon, just the remainder of the sermon. The word fellowship is probably the most misused and misunderstood term in Scripture sometimes. In Christianity, we go get a coffee with a friend and we say, oh, sweet fellowship time. And we think we fulfilled the biblical role. Nothing wrong with getting coffee. Nothing wrong with getting two cups of coffee. <laughs> but but let, let's not call that biblical fellowship. That's not the case. Nothing is wrong with doing these things and gathering with friends, even and just getting together. But the Bible, when it talks about fellowship, means so much more. Um, one writer said, "Fellowship biblically is deep and costly. It's not cheap and superficial." He goes on to say, the higher we value our personal privacy and freedom from commitments, the shallower our grasp of fellowship will be. And that's when he says it'll be reduced to moments of idle chat before and after the worship service. Well, Luke, Luke here, that's who wrote Acts, Luke corrects our view of this. He wants us to understand the importance here of fellowship. He uses a Greek word, some of you may have heard it, koinonia. It, it, it has this idea of sharing something or someone in common. Belonging together in something. That's the idea behind koinonia, which we translate fellowship. Luke only uses that word here in Acts 2.42. But he, he kind of helps us understand what he's trying to get at by the term. Because he uses the related adjective to that word in verse 44. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. koinas. Now, I'm not trying to give you a Greek lesson. I'm just showing you the connection. That word in verse 44, in common, is, is, is a similar word as koinonia. Now, you may have heard this. The Greek New Testament is written in koin, koine Greek, it's the common Greek of the time, the universal language of the time. It was common because everybody knew it. And so the focus of fellowship, in light of that little discussion there, is on what believers have in common with one another. One writer said it was a common fellowship because of the great spiritual realities that we all share in together. Think of some of the things we all have in common. We have a common God in which we share in together. First John 1, 3, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Our fellowship together. Second Corinthians, there is the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. And so our fellowship is a Trinitarian experience. It's our common share together in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And there's this common faith. Not the faith to believe, although we have that in common if we're believers, but the doctrinal content. We talked about that the other week in our devotion to the apostles' teaching. We have that common faith. We don't agree on everything. We know that. But we have a common faith, a common doctrinal content around the essentials, the things that are clearly taught in Scripture, a common confession. Third, we have a common worship. They were devoted to the fellowship. The breaking of bread and to the prayers. In verse 46, we read, attending to the temple together, and in verse 47, praising God. Now, I hinted earlier that when the definite article is there in front of the breaking of bread and the prayers, that it's referring to the Lord's Supper. And when it writes the breaking of bread with the definite article in front of it, the breaking of bread, that, that is the Lord's Supper. And when he writes the prayers with the definite article, he's talking about corporate prayer meetings or prayer services. In fact, many believe when he says the fellowship with the definite article, in front of it he means the worship service. And so their fellowship that they had with one another in Christ was expressed in their common worship service. Preaching, prayer, praise, and participating in the Lord's Supper. And so our common worship and our common faith both have to do with our common sharing in God. We have this common belief system about God, and we have this common worship that we worship that God. So it's all tied in together. Our fellowship has to do with our common share in Jesus. Well, this um, sharing in, that's what we're sharing in together, it results in kind of a sharing out. And, and so, close fellowship with God is to be shared with one another. See, fellowship with God and true fellowship with other believers go together. You know, what, what does 1 John say? That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Our, our fellowship with one another is born out of our fellowship with the Father and the Son. The stronger your vertical relationship with God is, the stronger your horizontal relationship with other brothers and sisters in Christ will be. Now, James Boyce put it this way. He said, "...if you find yourself out of fellowship with God, you will begin to find yourself out of fellowship with other Christians." You will say, I don't really like to be with other Christians very much. They all seem like hypocrites. You will begin to drift off. But if you come close to God, you will inevitably find yourself being drawn close to other Christians. And then he says it works the other way, too. If you spend time with other Christians, if you share a great deal with them, our common things, that fellowship will help you draw closer to God. This is why, by the way, if, if someone you know is struggling with sin, struggling with it, and, and, and they're maybe embarrassed by their sin, it, it's not time to say you stay away until you get your act together. It, it's time to say, come to church. Hear the message, fellowship with us, because the stronger your fellowship with one another, the stronger your relationship with God, the easier it is to give up sin. In either case, biblical fellowship Just doesn't just share what we express um, and what we share in together. It it shares something out. It's what we give, not just what we receive. See, often in the New Testament, koinonia has actual financial overtones. Um, For example, the word koinonia is the word Paul used for the collection. Remember the collection he took up in Corinthians among the Greek churches? He writes this, For they gave according to their means as I can testify, and beyond their means, on their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Taking part, participating in. The word is koinonia. And one of the variants of the word is a word that means generous. And so you see the connection with these words. It's the same word group. And that's what Luke is particularly referring to in our passage. The way in which these first Christians shared their possessions with one another. Look at verse 44 and then 45. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And then they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And so you could say they had common finances, they had common faith. The apostles' teaching, they had common worship, Lord's Supper and prayer, they had common family, they shared their life together, they had common finances, selling their possessions and belongings, and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, as an aside, let me just point out, maybe you've heard this, you may have heard of socialism lately, and communism. Um... And many people say, well, see, it started here. I mean, they're, they're selling everything and giving it to others. Well, see, communism, by definition generally, is the, is the forced sharing of goods. It's the forced sharing of goods on the basis that you have no right to own anything. Socialism says you do have the right to private property, but socialism says you should give up those rights. Um, and, and, and give away a large percentage of your goods. In fact, you have to do it. You can own it, and you can have private property, but you have to give up. That's not what's happening here. This sharing was completely voluntary. The right to private property is, is assumed, and in fact, is validated in Scripture. Remember when Peter, uh, he, 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 um, he's rebuking Ananias and Sapphira? Because they they sold their property, but then they kept back some of the funds. And people say, see? No, they lied. That was the point. In fact, Peter says, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? Peter's saying, look, you didn't have to sell it. It's yours. You can own it. You didn't have to give the money. Once you decided to sell it and tell everybody you were given all the money for this cause, and then you lied, that's the problem. And so, this isn't socialism. Uh, the early Christians shared their possessions, not because they were socialist, not, not because they were communist, not because they were forced to sell their possessions. They shared their possessions because they were generous. And the reason they were generous is because they had learned generosity from God, who had been generous to them to give his son to die for them while they were yet sinners and so because god has been so generous to them they were determined to be generous with one another and so you see think of this there's 3000 new converts they've traveled from all over many many miles and they and they get saved and now pentecost is over but they don't want to leave why they're they're sitting under the apostles teaching and they were staying in jerusalem it's 3,000 people. They needed shelter. They needed food. They needed money, I'm sure. I'm sure they needed physical help in some way. And in order to remain there, they needed this, and that's what they were willing to do. The, the, The believers, the 120, and maybe others that lived in Jerusalem said, you know what, we'll give up what we have so you can stay. Why? Because we want you to hear the word of God. And so that's what we find here. This was not forced giving is generous giving, because they serve the generous God. Well, if we're followers of Jesus Christ, if we've learned from him, then we know that a man's life does not consist of his possessions. I mean, we don't live that way sometimes, but we know it. We can at least say it up here that it's not my possessions. It's more blessed to give than receive. We know that's true. And so our obligation is to use what we have for others. We're called to generosity, especially towards the poor and needy. John writes in 1 John 3, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And so true Christian fellowship not only involves investment of time and attention to others, but also the investment of dollars and cents for others. It it involves common generosity, common giving, common finances. And so there you have it. That's what true fellowship means. We share in the same triune God. We have a common faith, a common family, a common worship, common finances. And now we'll look at the last one. A common meal. Look at verse 46. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Or to put it the way the NIV puts it, they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Now, The meals here, breaking bread, doesn't say the breaking of bread. There's no definite article, and it refers to what often took place at the time. They would have a love feast before they took communion together. They were together in each other's homes. That's the main point I'm making. Now, this isn't a passing comment. It's not like I found finally food and I could talk to you about food. I like to eat, so here we go. We're going to talk about this every week. Now, it's not a passing comment, though. It's, a, it's important. If you look at the life of Jesus, a lot of his ministry took place around the table. He ate with friends, we're told in Matthew 9. In Luke 10, we're told that he ate with his really close friends often. We're told that he ate with a prostitute. He ate with skeptics in Luke 7. And he ate with tax collectors and sinners. That's why they called him a glutton. And a drunkard, because he was hanging out with these people, having meals together. Luke uh, 7, and I said that, Matthew 11. And remember, his final meal, the Lord's Supper, and the disciples, he predicted his betrayal in Matthew 26. It often took place around meals. In fact, Jesus actually likens the future kingdom to a dinner party. In the book of Revelation, Jesus promises to come and have a meal with the one who overcomes by faith. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Revelation 3.20. And so, as one writer states, in one very real sense, we can say that food was created for the purpose of showing forth the joys of being with Christ in the future kingdom. Every time you have a meal, you're reminded that someday I'm going to share a meal with my Savior. And so, while the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, Paul tells us that, it's about righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit, we still would do well to follow the early church, in its example, and take eating meals together in the family of God seriously. See, the truth is you cannot claim to be participating in the common life together if all you do is attend Sunday morning. It doesn't mean you go to every one of our programs. That's not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about fellowshipping with other believers. Worship is central. I've said that every week. It is central, it is important, it is ultimate, but it's not enough. We need to be living our lives together. And, and, and one of the biblical ways of doing that is coming together with, as a family and sharing a common meal. We're talking about starting life groups again, um, having those time together, having larger group gatherings together. Why? Because I just want to do activities and I know you're bored and I have to give you something to do. No, no. It's fellowship. It's what we're called to do. And so we're looking into those things. And so biblical fellowship consists of sharing in the triune God. Its foundation is the common faith and common future we have with Christ. It includes coming together as a family for corporate worship and praying together and praising together and partaking of the Lord's Supper together and receiving the preached word together. It means the sharing of material possessions to meet the needs of the community and eating together with glad and generous hearts. That is what Scripture means by fellowship. It's a little bit more than just having coffee together and saying hello and goodbye on Sunday morning. And so what does a church look like that's actually doing that? I mean, if you, if you found a church that did that, Out of the heart, desire to serve Christ and fellow man, what would it look like? Well, we're told in verse 47, Having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved, or day by day those who were being saved. See, when we live our lives in the church as it's described here in Acts, the world takes notice. The world takes notice. And when we live our lives in the church, as it's described here in Acts, as we relate to one another in this loving, sacrificial, costly way, what happens is people take notice because it's different than whatever they have experienced. And here's the key to this. Understand, every single person out there that mocks our God and despises Christianity has this desire to be loved in this way. Every single one of them. And so when they see that we're doing it, and when they, when they understand that we're not building this exclusive club, that all are welcome in the name of Jesus Christ. Yes, you have to repent of your sins. Yes, you need to confess Christ. Yes, you need to put aside these certain lifestyle and come in. But you are welcome here as you're struggling with that because we have this common faith in Jesus. When those outside see that, they take notice See, the answer isn't become like the world. Then we have nothing new to offer the world, and they always do it better than us anyway. The answer is to be what Jesus called us to be. John Stott said, those first Jerusalem Christians were not so preoccupied with learning, sharing, and worshiping that they forgot about witnessing. And then he says this, and we need to remember it. For the Holy Spirit is a missionary spirit who created a missionary church. And so our life together in fellowship attracts the world so that you too can be part, they too can be part of a loving community. It's not a club. The truth is if we want to see our church grow evangelistically, if we want to see our family grow, the answer is not change our worship style as some say or you got to be more like the world. No, it's not about flash. It is about fellowship. If you want to attract the lost, we need to show them that something that they long for can be found here. It's a family of diverse people who are willing to share their life together through good times and bad A family where we forgive one another because we're forgiven in Christ. A a family where we love one another because why? We're loved in Christ. A family where we are generous to one another because God was generous to us in Christ. A family where we share the good news of the gospel with those outside because we desire them to be part of something that God called us into. That's what we need to show them. A family when someone we love loses their child. We we come around them. It's not only church people that lose their children. And so when they see that love, when they see that care, when they see your devotion, that you're devoted to these things, they have to take notice. Oh, they may reject it. They're dead in their trespasses and sins, but they have to take notice. And so fellowship is central to the body of Christ. It's central to the building of the church. And so here's my prayer. It's simple, that our church will follow the pattern. It's ordinary, it's not, it doesn't seem that big of a deal, but that by grace of God, by the grace of God, we will express our love for him and one another by devoting ourselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and that by doing so, our community here in Lancaster County will take notice and come to Jesus for salvation. Let's pray. For our great God and Heavenly Father, it's always great to talk about the ideal and at the same time recognize that we fall short of it. And so we just ask for the strength of your spirit to do the things that you have called us to do. Ultimately, Lord, that we would love one another, that we would care for one another as we worship our common God, in our common worship, with our common faith. All doing it for your glory in the edification of the body and the saving of the lost. In Jesus' name, amen.